This episode is brought to you by Northern Rural Supplies. Northern Rural Supplies proudly service the Kimberley and Pilbara region, specialising in livestock sales, real estate, animal health and management, fencing, fertiliser, water and all other requirements. They stock your everyday needs to feed your dogs, cats, horses, chooks, camels and even goats. The whole team is based in Broome, so make sure you give them a call for all of your agricultural and semi-rural needs. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. This episode contains discussions about anxiety, depression, eating disorders, and self harm. It may be best to listen in the support of company or skip this episode. If you need help, a range of services are available. Please see the show notes for more details. Claudia Hiscox has spent the last three years living and working on cattle stations in remote parts of the Northern Territory. The days are long and the work is tough. It's a physically and mentally demanding job at the best of times. In amongst mustering cattle and fixing fences, Claudia has been handling another challenge. Managing her mental health after experiencing anxiety, depression and an eating disorder in her teenage years. It's no easy task, especially when the nearest medical professional is hundreds of kilometres away and internet service isn't always reliable. In this special episode, Claudia shares her story with immense candour. I've been aware of Claudia for quite some time because she is an incredible photographer who I follow on Instagram. However, I had no idea about this side of Claudia's story. And I first learnt about it through listening to a podcast episode she did on a show called Pieces of the Mind, which is hosted by Annie Henwood. And I highly recommend that you go and search that podcast and subscribe. Annie has done a wonderful job producing two seasons and it's a podcast centered around mental health in the bush. And she's interviewed some very prominent people in our industry, as well as everyday people. Thank you, Annie, for all that you do with that podcast. And thank you, Claudia, for coming on the show and being so brave and candid in sharing your story. It was, it, I think it was about, no, it would have been the start of the year and it was 
blazing hot, hot, and there was there was three of us first years at Riverin. There no, there was four four first years, and we we were asked to go fencing. We got told to said, "All right, girls, two of you will go fencing." And we were like, no worries. We went to grab the buggy and put the pickets and the wire on and my head stockman was like, oh, no, 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 not today. We will fly you out. We had, um, we had lease country at the bottom of our station and we thought, oh, okay, you'll fly us out. No worries. And he, he said, yeah, we've got a truck pilot coming in. You just, we'll just, you just take a radio. There's no radio service, but take the radio anyway. Just like if you need it, you probably won't be able to use it. And. So we had a chopper pilot come out and us three girls, we loaded up. They were taken out one at a time. So I was the first to get dropped out and I had my set of pliers and my little handheld radio that had no service anyway. And this was my first year I would have been, I reckon I would have been fresh 18. And I remember being out there in the middle of bum nowhere and standing there going, oh, this is actually a little bit scary, isn't it? There's nobody here. And then when I saw the chopper come back, I remember my heart just racing, being like, oh, thank goodness, thank goodness. And then another girl came, and then the chopper pilot came. And I was, that was probably the first time I'd experienced that type of remoteness, I think. Like, I'd never really been in the middle of nowhere and gone, wow, there is, there is nothing here apart from myself and two other people. I thought that was, a, that was a really cool experience as an 18 year old, I think. Yeah, so he left us for a little while there and he said, Righto girls, you just do your thing. I'm going to go get more barb and then more wire. And three of us first years just going, no worries. Okay. That's fine. And then same thing when he came back and then we got picked up to go home. I was the last one to get picked up and I was like, please come back. Please make sure you come back. <laughs> so you're out in like literally the middle of nowhere fixing fences, just you and three other girls. What do you do when you're out there? Do you play music on your phone? Do you tell stories? Are you even near each other or do you have to kind of go X amount of distance apart that you're kind of on your own? Uh, it was it was just a flood fence. It was a, a long stretch of flood fence that had all been knocked down. So we're kind of all near each other, but it was still, yeah, just kind of working together, plodding along, moving around the place. And for our listeners that may not know, what is a flood fence? A flood fence is, uh, there's a few types of flood fences. It's usually so, it's any type of fence that's in a river, creek, lake system, and it's usually set up in a way that it will knock over with the water but still bounce back. But a lot of times they don't do that. They just get demolished. Get completely smashed. And I guess I should also ask, why was it that you had to go out in the plane oh no sorry in the helicopter to get there was it that it was just too far away to drive to make it economical or so because it was lease country there were no roads at all so that was the only way you could get out I'm sure you could maybe brave it on a motorbike but yeah that was the only way you could get out there and so that was your first year on a cattle station just one one memory what we're going to talk about today is kind of your journey of how you found yourself in that position up on a cattle station in the Northern Territory. And what I find quite amazing is that, as you said, you're 18 years old, you're fresh out of school, you've gone half the country away from home and you're working on a remote isolated property with no one you know, no family, no nothing nearby, which is something that people do every year. Like that's that's quite a normal 
standard thing in this industry. But what I find so incredible about your story is that you did that on the back of a couple of really tough years. Can you tell me, I guess, a little bit about that and then we'll go back to the beginning? Yeah, and in school, I think about, I would have been about probably 16 when I really realised I was struggling with some mental health stuff and I struggled with that for, I still struggle with that to this day, but it, it gets, it's up and down, it gets easier. And I think I got to my last year of school and I'd always wanted to go to a station, always wanted to do that, but I think my anxiety was like, you're going to fall off a horse and die. Or, you know, you won't be able to do it. You're not good enough to do it. And then I kind of got to a point where I was like, if you don't do it now, you won't ever do it. So I kind of bit the bullet and I started applying and I took the first job that somebody got back to me. That was at Invoy and Riverin. And I was, I was so excited. I was like, this is going to be so cool. I'm going to have so much fun. And I think it kind of opened up a lot of doors with my mental health to, yeah, you, you go from being in school to this when you brush your teeth, this when you go to dinner, this when you do this, and it's the t- same type of schedule on a station, but you are you you learn to stand on your own two feet a lot more. I think I think I needed that at the time. I just think for anyone that does that, it's such a big transition for any young person that leaves school and goes into the workforce, particularly in a remote part of Australia. But with your situation and your mental health struggles, you were extra vulnerable. And I just think it's incredible that you still managed to do that. In a podcast you did with Annie Henwood um, called Pieces of the Mind, you mentioned that your mental health struggles or issues, I always, I always trip up when I get to talking about this because I'm like, do you call it an issue? Do you call it a problem? My cousin's actually a mental health nurse and she's like, don't call it an issue because like the like that's not the right language to use and oh anyway so but you know what I'm talking about I always yeah as soon as I say it, I'm like oh should I call it that should I call it something else but what I was blown away and I guess heartbroken to hear about on your episode with Annie is that it kind of started at age 11 with you I always think that it manifested itself at age 11 I think there was underlying things like no, I don't think anyone comes out of childhood unscathed. No, no matter what, you could have the greatest childhood, but you'll still come out with a few bruises and cuts and stuff like that. But I think age 11, I, th- oh, yeah, age 11, I started struggling a bit with, oh, I think I'm fat or why did I do it like that? Am I ugly? That type of stuff. And then it, it just kind of anyone who's experienced anxiety or stuff, like that will know that it just it grows and grows and grows and grows and it piles up until it's actually real and it's something you believe. I think that's what happened then. And then same thing as I got older, kind of, I'm not going to say flourished because that's the wrong word, but it moved into an eating disorder. So I started started restricting my eating, but it was it was it was only a little bit. I reckon I would have been thirteen. And just enough that my parents wouldn't notice, but just enough that I'd be able to start losing weight and start, start, yeah, looking how I wanted to look. And I wasn't, I wasn't a fat child, but I was, I was chubby. I was a little chubby girl. And I was like, I'm so sick of this. I'm so sick of being the fat girl. Even though I look back now and think you weren't, you weren't the fat girl at all. 
but in my in my thirteen year old mind, I was like, I've got to get rid of this, and then and then people will really like me. So I'm just thinking, I'm like, okay, Steph, can you make it through this podcast without crying? Like, I can feel them coming. Eleven is so bloody young to be looking in the mirror, thinking this isn't. I don't look okay. Like, I I don't know if you know, but like, do you do you think you know where that came from? Like, is it? something someone said or something you saw on TV or read it. Like how do you at that age like even have that, I guess, awareness of or was that, I guess, did your, I don't know, when your body started to change, you know, when you kind of start to get breasts and a bit more shape. I don't know if that was around then, but like how it's just so young. Yeah, I've done so much therapy to try and figure out when this started. I still, I still go, no, I don't know, was it then, was it then, was it now? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I still don't know. I still don't know what causes it. And so if those body image issues started around the age of 11, which still I just, it's so hard to comprehend. I think a little 11 year old girl, you know, feeling that way. And then you started restricting your eating at 13. Where do you even get the idea to do that? Like, is it, I guess, I guess there's so many things we must pick up subconsciously through like magazine articles or storylines on TV shows, you know, that you watch with your family. But I just think like as a 13 year old, how do you think I need to stop eating? I still don't know this myself. I think like where it wasn't really the time social media was sort of coming into light, but it wasn't, I didn't have Facebook. I didn't have, I think I had Instagram, but I was 13. I had Instagram to show my friends photos of my dog. Or something, you know, like it wasn't looking at models or anything like that. I don't think that was, I don't think that had a great effect on my issues with it. But I also think it's that time where you're, you're coming of age a bit and you're, you're looking at things differently and boys come in and all the girls are like, oh, I'm like, let's try this new smoothie or something, like something weird like that. And I think I thought, oh, I might like, I think it started out with, I'm going to change the way I eat completely. I'm going to change it completely so that, like, like I'm, I don't know what the trend was back then, like smoothie bowls and weird shit and, like, oh, like seeds and birdseed food and whatever it was. So I was like, that sounds perfect. Then I got a bit obsessed with it and was like, I can't eat now. I can't eat from this time to this time. I can't eat this I can't eat that but it was it didn't present itself like that to other people it was more like how how far can I go without people knowing how how well can I hide it like how much weight can I lose before people start saying and people would I'd, I remember going to Christmas and my family were like you look great Claude and I was like yes that's what I wanted to hear that's so good and people don't the people don't try and do that people don't realize but mm. it feeds it because you're like like that's so good. I just can't comprehend it. Like just to think I've got a 13-year-old niece at the moment and to think that that's what she could be going through, I I just, I know I've said this like three times, but I can't comprehend it. What happened or how did the following years play out as you kind of went from child into teenage? I mean, you also moved away from home to boarding school. Yes. So there's another big change in your life there as well. Yeah, I went to, I was lucky enough to go to boarding school in Toowoomba. I think I started there in 2016. 2016, I started there as a grade, grade nine, grade nine I started. And for a little bit, I think the eating, like the restricting died down a bit. 
until we scored um oh used to be a joke that you'd put on 15 kilos. It was like feedlot at boarding school because you'd come there and you'd never eaten like the buffet food and stuff. And then I was like, oh, I can't have that. I can't, I can't be, I can't be putting on 15 kilos. And then there's a, there's a lot of girls there and a lot of teachers that if you don't eat dinner, it's very obvious. Or if you skip meals, it's very obvious. So then instead of restricting eating, it was, I can still eat it, but I can vomit it back up and no one will know. So then I built a relationship with bulimia for a little while there. Oh, actually, for a long while, not a little while, a long while. Again, I have to ask, how do you, as a child or a teenager, even learn what bulimia is and even learn that you can make yourself throw up? Like, where do you first come across that? I still don't know. I have, like, as a third, oh, 14-year-old, how would you – I don't know how I would know that that was a thing. Unless unless we'd learnt about it, I don't know, but I don't see why we would have done that. But it makes me wonder about um like storylines in T V shows, like say if you're watching Home and Away or I'm trying to think of what would have been on T V when, when you were younger. Um, but for me it was like the O C and yeah. kind of old vintage shows like that. Um, where there might have been a storyline where somebody was you know, experiencing something can I or was it in a dolly magazine or a girlfriend magazine or but I just want I'm like, where do you actually and then and then how do you even go and like try it and if it doesn't work, like then how do you figure out how to make it work? Like, you know, who says put these two fingers, you put one finger down, two finger down, a whole yeah. hand down? Like what do you what do you do? Like I, I think it's what we were saying before. It might be like that subconscious thing of, hmm, let's try this, it might work. Yeah. Yeah, but it's I'm still paying for that today. After vomiting all the time, my teeth are awful. Um, my metabolism is stuffed. Yeah, it's. I wish I, I wish I had a tried and got help earlier because maybe I would not have those problems today. But at the same time, you can't change what you can't control. And you were a child doing the best you knew. Yes. Like, did anybody was anybody else aware of what was going on? No, no, it was my little secret. No one else could know. Oh, I think after a while I had one friend that knew. I think she was struggling a bit with the same issues. But when you're 14, 15, you feed off each other like that. It's not like, we should get help. It's like, oh, my God, look at us. No one knows. And did things progress from there or did they start to settle down? I guess what happened I think it, it progressed more into anxiety and depression. So it was the bulimia was still there, but then the anxiety and depression were like, we're going to join the party and it's going to be super fun and we're probably going to take over the bulimia. So it got, yeah, the bulimia was up and down a lot and I'm glad to say that's not something that's been in my life for quite a few years. Like all the, all the triggers are still there, but it hasn't been in my life for a while. But I think... I was 16 when I started struggling a lot with anxiety and depression, probably more so depression, a lot of fatigue and a lot, a lot of insecurities and self-confidence issues. Like thinking, like thinking all your friends hate you and that you're 
you're so dumb and blah, 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 which sounds trivial, but when you're going through high school and you're trying to, you've got teachers barking down your ear going, but like, what are you going to do after school, girls, and things like that, and you're thinking, can I, can I even do it? Will I be able to do it? Who knows? You just keep leaving me speechless. Sorry. I just, I just think how many kids are going through this. And again, like there's no, and I guess this is what's important. And part of the reason I was hoping you would share your story as you are is that there doesn't have to be a single event or moment or something to kind of trigger this. It's not like, um, you have to be bullied or there was some big yeah, moment in your life. Like from my understanding of what you've shared, nothing particularly monumental happened. No. But yet this was still happening, you know, under the surface with you. And I think people would think, well, she's, that's just Claudia. She's doing her thing. She's, she looks happy and healthy and fine and everything's fine. Like, you know, yes. why, why would there be an issue? Whereas if there had been a kid that had been, bullied or there was something more obvious, like more visually obvious, then people might kind of lean towards suspecting, you know, or to keep an eye on that person. Yes, and I think I really – that was one thing that played on my mind a lot, going, what right do you have to be sad? Like, And my family was very cut and dry, like when I was younger. It's like, oh, be grateful, you know, there's people in wheelchairs, you know, like you've got two legs and like not in a – not in a not caring way, but like kids be grateful, be grateful for what we have and what we do and what we can have. So it, I, I really was like, like, how come, how come I feel like this when I shouldn't? I don't deserve to be sad when there's so many worse people in the world that, that deserve to be sad and having these issues. Like, I would always be like, why can't I just be normal? Why can't I just be happy? And then you like, you stoop into those lows and the highs and lows and the highs and lows and people are like, she, she on crack or something <laughs> like, yeah. When did the anxiety and depression and eating disorders transition into self-harm? Uh, when I was, I think, 17, 17. So that's what kind of, in a way, the self-harm is what got me out of like it would, it got me help. The self harm led me to help. So I think self harm is a very controversial topic. There's a lot of people that will say it's attention seeking and blah, blah, blah. And I understand where they come from, but I think that those type of people are not educated or yeah, they don't know enough about the subject, but at the same time, I'm happy for them because they don't know about it. But yeah. When I was 17, it got to a point of that was something I could control. That was something that would hurt, but I could control it, which sounds very emo and grungy, but that, but that's what it was. And it wasn't like I used to wear my watch band and I used to put like wrap it in a band aid and then I'd wear my watch. So you couldn't really see it and people would be like, what's that about? Nothing. It's nothing. But. I had two friends that got to the point that like this is this well, you, well, you can't be doing this, and in my head I was like, 
far out. They've just found out this is not good. People are going to know I'm crazy now. And it, that was my big thing. Like, I didn't want help because I was like, I can't let people know that I've got head noise. It's like I can't let people know there's something wrong. But, yeah, that essentially after they went and like told some teachers and stuff like that, and that was what actually led me to help. So I think without that, I don't really know where I'd be. But in a way, that self-harm led me to help. While you are at school, was the topic of mental health ever raised like in the classroom or just just in the school environment? Like was there any education offered around that? Not that nothing really stands out to me. I don't really remember ever being taught about mental health. I think we would have had we would have had people come around and do little chats, but it was more like Oh, I think I th- yeah. I don't remember ever having chats about it. I just find it interesting when you said before, um, no one can know about this, no one can know that I'm crazy or, or that that I guess whether or not like we don't just have thoughts, like they're all shaped by something and, and a like a number of experiences and whether it was um something direct or something kind of quite passive in the background, at some point you've been exposed and and believed that mental health was bad and that's something you should be ashamed of and don't talk about it and that, yeah, if you have it, then people will look down on you or something like that. And so you try to keep it secret. So again, I'm, I know there's a lot of work being done in the last few years or over the last few decades really to break the stigma, but this wasn't that long ago that you were going through this. And yeah, it was just, I thought that was interesting that you somehow, somewhere picked up that it's bad. Mm. I don't, yeah, I don't know why I thought it was – I don't know whether it was I didn't want to be a burden to anyone, but at the same time I would have picked up that ideology from somewhere thinking that it's it's wrong. Yeah, but I don't, I don't know because it's not – like it's not intrinsically said mental health is bad and awful and don't tell anyone, mm-hmm. but it's something you pick up through life, yeah. I think. But Everything it's comes from somewhere. Yes. What did getting help look like for you? Getting help at the start was – it was very hard for me because I felt like I was playing the life of a movie character, being like, mm, sad girl, goes to see therapist. But it was – I yeah, I was lucky. You know, I had my grandmother come up and pretty much – she helped me with everything. She would take me to – I saw a psychologist – and then I didn't like that psychologist because she would sit there and be like, and how do you feel about that? And I'd be like, I don't want to talk to you, lady. So then I found another psychologist that was bright and bubbly and she was fun and she wouldn't beat around the bush. She was just like, that sucks, but here's what we can do to work through it. Yeah, so I and started seeing psychologists and I started seeing a psychiatrist. Uh, tried a couple of different medications until I found one that worked for me and I still take that. Today, still take that today. I don't plan to be on it forever, but it did really help me. Like paired with therapy, it really helped. Really, really helped change my mindset and the way I think. And probably without my grandmother doing that, I wouldn't have understood half the things that I was taught because she would, she, she wouldn't pry, 
but she would say, what, what, what do we need to work on now? What type of like, what are we going to, what's our homework? And she would, she'd be like, what do you, what do you want for dinner? You want this? We'll go get it. You want this? We'll make it. You want a coffee? We'll go buy a coffee. I'll be there at three thirty to pick you up from school and we'll go. We'll do this. Do you want a coffee of an afternoon? Like you were, like she was just like, she wasn't serving on me hand and foot, but she was understanding that I was fragile, which was, there's anyone going through something like that and you're always thinking, how can I help? And people always try to fix it, fix the problem. And I always say, don't try and fix a problem, be there while the problem is being fixed. Be the person to the side going, let's, let's do this. Well, what do you need? Not, what's wrong with you? What do, what do we need to do to fix it? That's, those are very wise words because I'm a fixer. Like I try and if someone's – and I try to make a conscious effort these days if someone's telling me a problem just to listen and not offer any solutions, but I – even if I've got them in my head, but I find it really hard. Like even if it's just something like an issue at work and in my mind I want to be like, all right, we just need to go talk to them about this or maybe you could try this or that. Like, And I just want to – and I want to wrap things up in a neat little bow and be like, it's fixed. That's – yeah, I had to work hard a lot with that because – you you do want to you want to solve the problem, but I think back and I think all I wanted, and still sometimes all you want is someone, someone more knowledgeable, more experienced, to say, "Hey, it's going to be okay. We're going we are going to work through it, and it's going to be fine. It's going to be shit, but it's going to be fine in the end." Not going, "All right, we're going to do this, 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 and this, and like this is what we're going to do." Instead of going, "We will be okay." As you said, in that particularly in that final year of school, you were in, was that your final year of school when yes. that was happening? Yes. So big year, like for in any regular circumstance, huge year, a lot of pressure on people with exams, picking choices for uni or goal, whatever trades they're going to do, what is life plans. You mentioned you were particularly fragile, which is from what you've just described happening kind of from the ages of 11 through 17 is so understandable. You then left um, Queensland to go to the Northern Territory, like is where we started this episode, which to me is terrifying. Like I think, I don't know, you must have been terrified. Your family must have been terrified. Like it's a big thing to do that in general, but to do it in your with your circumstances in the background, where did that idea come from and and how did you feel going into it? Yeah, I I struggled with the idea for a long time. I think it it wasn't me struggling with it. It was my anxiety going, like as I said before, my anxiety going like, what if you get hurt? What if like, what if you're not good enough? What if it doesn't? What if you can't do all the stuff that you have to? No, even though I knew I'd grown up, like both my parents are agents, real estate agents, stock and station agents. I've grown up in the industry, but. I was still like, what if, what you, like, what if you know nothing? Which nine times out of ten you'll come up and you'll think you know nothing because you won't know. Yeah, it's, yeah, you'll learn so much that it'll be coming out your eyeballs, but it's great. Yeah. I think I, I kind of just bit the bullet and went, if I don't do it now, I will never do it. And I knew that I would regret it. And now I've been in the industry for three years, I think. I can't imagine. Like, imagine if I went, no, I'm too scared. I won't do it. Cause I can't really see, I can't imagine where I would be. 
If, if does that make sense? Like yeah. It, I can't imagine how life would have worked out. But leaving school, staring down the barrel of that gun, going, I'm moving a long way away, and I wasn't. I wasn't scared. Funnily enough, by that time, once I'd released it and said, "Okay, that's what I'm doing," it was out of my control, and I was. And then, then I got excited. Then I think, how do you when you end up on the station? What was your plan, I guess, to manage your your mental health? Well, at the time, I had a psychologist. I had a clinical mental health nurse that I spoke to a lot, and I had a psychiatrist. So I kind of – I had that team behind me to support me, so I knew that if something were to go wrong, I'd be – I'd have the people I need to talk to behind me. And to be honest with you, that first year is probably – I couldn't believe how great I felt. I think I really came into my own a bit. Like I was like, you're not a fragile, scared little girl anymore. Like you can do stuff. You can stand on your feet. You can, you can have your own thoughts and like you can be okay with what you think about things and you can have opinions that maybe not everyone agrees with or you can, you can laugh and make jokes and not be like, Oh, did I just sound stupid? Like I really, I found my feet. I think that first year, I think I needed it because I, you pretty much you get thrown into the deep end. You don't know anyone, and it kind of supports you to find out who you are because you don't have people telling you who you are or who you've been for the last eighteen years. You like, get to work it out like a fresh slate. Yes, and it yes. sounds like you started to feel comfortable in your own skin. And that's my grandmother always said that. She said. Whatever you do after school, whether you go to uni or anything, go somewhere else. Do not stay in your hometown. Go somewhere else where you don't know anyone because that's where you build your life skills and your people skills and your character build. So that team of medical professionals that you had, you said you had them behind you, did you have regular appointments or anything, any kind of treatment in that first year while you're on the station? Because that's something that can be quite hard because – it's not like a town job where you can say, can I do this on my lunch break, like a lunch break, or can I have book some time off? Like there is no autonomy for a station hand. No, I was, I was lucky enough with the managers I worked for that before I started working there, everyone was fully debriefed that that would be what I would have to do. But my, by, by that stage, it wasn't, as like my appointments weren't as frequent, so it was, it wasn't a weekly thing, but it was still, that's just what Claudia is going to have to do. Like I would have, I would say, hey, I've got a Skype appointment next week, and be like, no worries, too easy. You can, you do that, then you'll go fancy. You do that, and then you'll go lick running. So like, there's, there's ways around it, always, always ways around it. And now, even now, I still, I still see therapist and stuff over Skype and whether it's half an hour or two hours, it's it's the same as doing a town run. How did you go about telling your bosses that that was going to be the case? Were you worried that they'd be like, well, nah, don't come up here then, like, or something like that? I think that's something that would play on a lot of people's minds, even even mine. Yeah, for some reason, I don't know why I wasn't worried about that. I think I'd 
yeah, anyone you talk to will know that I'm pretty open with it. And I think I'd gotten to that stage then of this is, this is what I have and I can't change it. I can grow with it. I can grow from it. But at the moment, this is what I have. I have anxiety and depression and this is, this is what I deal with. It's, and like, I don't think I'd contemplated the thought of them going, Oh no, that's, that's not good. And, I probably should have because <laughs> it would have been a rude shock if they said, oh, no, we can't have you. But they were they were awesome from the get-go. They were. And they were always so accommodating. They wouldn't pry. would be like, hey, you're good after that? Like, you're right to go back to work? You're feeling okay? Like, they weren't just like, oh, God, here she goes again. That's just – I just think that's so incredible to hear because I have heard of situations where it's kind of been yes. the opposite. So I'm so glad that you had that experience and so you've been in the territory for three years now, working on cattle stations, still having to manage. I mean, it's something you manage for life, but at this level of of having appointments and that kind of stuff, you've been able to find that balance and find supportive workplaces where you can live remotely in a very busy, isolated environment and still be able to get the care you need to look after yourself. Yeah, I've been... I've been very lucky with the people I've worked for and I, I know people that can't say the same, but I've been very lucky with the managers that I've had that have gone, you do what you need to do. Like, like I, managers I had last, last year, I was struggling a lot with panic attacks and they said, look, have, like, have tomorrow off. Like, you're no good to us if you can't breathe. Like, but, and not in a rude way, like my, my manager took me to town and she, like she took me to emergency when I thought I was having a heart attack and even though she knew that I wasn't having a heart attack, she was like, this is what's going to soothe your mind. So we're going to do it. And then tomorrow you're going to have your day off. Like stuff like that. I've worked for very supportive people. I know a lot of people can't say the same, but I think the biggest thing is having that conversation of this is this is what I have. And whether you understand it or not, it's gonna, it, we're going to have to work with it. Yeah. And I guess if those people aren't supportive of you seeking or receiving treatment, then that's not the right environment for you to be working in anyway. That's probably like the biggest red flag to get the heck out of Dodge. Talk to me about station life and working on stations. And obviously there's something that about it that that sings out to you because three years later and you're still here. I love it. I really, I love it. I love the growth. I love the growth and how much I also love how much you can grow as a person. And I love that you're on you're on your feet but you're using your brain at the same time. You're constantly like you work hard, play hard, you do your long days, but you come back and you sit down with everyone. Like I could go on about it. Do you like the community? I love the community of it. I love the people. And like sometimes you might be like, Oh, I just want to date myself but then you have that day to yourself and you're like, Oh, what's everyone else doing? I might go see everyone else. Like Yeah, I Yeah. I just and I love the I love the room for growth too and the the learning. And because everyone you can learn something different off everyone, which would be the same I would think for most industry industries, but I love the linear growth. If can, that makes sense. Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? About what kind of growth I guess you've experienced and how it's come about? Yeah, I think just with working for different people and moving up each year into 
different levels. Like I'm, I'm only a third year, but I look back to where I started and think far out. You've learned a lot since then. Like, yeah, learned a lot. And I guess the more you progress with it, you move into higher roles, you move into leading hand head shopping roles and, and then if that's what you decide to do, you move the, move up into even higher roles. <laughs> Something that you're quite well known for up here is your incredible photography. And I'm not going to lie. So you are, it feels like we've discussed a whole lifetime's worth of stuff, but you bloody hell, you're only 20. Like, and your work is incredible. Um, how has, I guess, I guess I wonder what role has photography played in I guess coping strategies and and life along this journey. Oh, I'm not sure. I like I've always loved creative stuff. Like I love painting, I love drawing, I love music, I love playing guitar. I love random stuff like that and I think that was probably the first thing I'd ever done where I was like, "Hey, I'm actually all right at photography. Like I'm not great, but I'm all right. Like maybe I could be really good at this." So it kind of, especially, especially like I started doing it before my mental health got really bad. So it's kind of been something that I've done all through that. And it was something I could look at and go, Hey, I've, I'm, I'm doing it and I'm getting better and I love it. And it's, I wouldn't, I would be so annoying. I would just take photos of everyone, everyone have a camera in someone's face. But yeah, I, I love it. it so. I mean, some of the things you've said before is that, especially through those high school years, that you would have thoughts like, do they like me or, oh, my God, why did I say that? Like kind of these negative thoughts of, you know, not being enough or not good enough. But it sounds like that wasn't the case with photography. Like you never yes. really kind of came down on yourself when it came to it. Like that was like a safe thing for you to enjoy yes. and not judge yourself on. It's going to sound very cringy. But it was kind of like it all went away when I had like a camera because I wasn't – that people weren't looking at me because they were thinking she's taking a photo of us. So, I yeah, I don't understand how it really worked for me, but it was just – it was you're a different person when you've got a camera, which sounds strange and probably cringy, but that's what it was. And I felt, felt a little bit more powerful within myself. I, I found confidence that I didn't have at the time when I took photos, I think. Do you think it? I guess it wouldn't have mattered what it was, whether you were taking photos or playing the guitar or something. Do you think for other people going through this, it's important to kind of have a hobby or something like that, that safe thing that you aren't kind of attacking yourself on, like whatever Definitely. form it takes? Definitely. I think, I think everyone needs an outlet and it doesn't matter what that is and you'll probably go through different things thinking, why am I not good at anything? Surely there's something and then you'll find it. You'll find your niche. And, yeah, I think everyone needs an outlet of something that you can do and it's almost mind-numbing. It's, you know, you can do it with your eyes closed and it's relaxing and it's an outlet. Like after a long day's work or whatever it is, I think it's extremely important to have that. Tell me about some of the favourite photos you've taken while you've been up here. Oh gosh. Put there's, you on the spot. There's a lot of photos I've taken. Well, what's your favourite thing to photograph, I guess? Horses. Love horses. And I love, I love like 
the early mornings and the late afternoons. I love people. Actually, that's probably my favourite thing. I love taking photos of people. I, yeah, it would be people because I used, I used to follow my little siblings around with a camera all the time and they got to the point where people would be like, are these models? I'm like, they bloody well should be. <laughs> this. Yeah, I think it would be people because I take so many photos of people. And what is it about that that you that draws you to want to take pictures of people, I guess, versus landscape or sports or, I don't know, anything else? People can tell a story. People can tell a story with their eyes. And if you can capture that essence, you can see it in a photo. And I think that's beautiful. I think it's super cool. What When you look at it, everyone will have a different perspective, but when you look at a photo of a person, you can make up your own theories of it, like what, what's happening in that photo, what you perceive it to be, and I think that's really cool. How often, I mean, working on a station is a very all-consuming kind of more than a full-time job. How often do you get to pick up your cameras and have that outlet? I, I would have the opportunity to pick it up most afternoons. I've probably gotten a bit slack with that, and I would be able to take it to yards, but I always feel like I should be working or taking photos. But, yeah, I managed – we did a breaking in school, and I managed to sneak a few photos there, a few couple of photos there. And, yeah, the most of the times I'm taking photos is at camp drafts and rodeos because – yeah, that's where – and you can take photos of so many different people and different things and then people are always like, oh, did you get – did you see my bull ride? Did you see my horse ride? Like, did you get a photo of my run? And it's like, yes, I hope so. For – I guess as we start to wrap up, I think I just – I love that we've been able to have this conversation today to show people that – and and it's uh, – I mean, with anything to do with mental health, it's it's not one size fits all. Every Everything is case by case. But I think your story will connect with a lot of people and show them that there are opportunities and sometimes you have to try and find the right ones, like the right people to work for, but that you can be struggling or going through something or working through managing something and still be able to do certain jobs, live in certain places and make a goal of it. But again, everything is yes, so case by case and and everything happens at different times. What sort of advice would you have for people that I guess are in similar positions to what you've been in or, or, and then the other thing is, I mean, you had some problems or issues before you came up to the station. Sometimes people develop them when they're already up here working. So how, what are you living and working remotely? Like what are the key things for you? The key things for me, I think is, I love working with people, but I also know my boundaries. I know that sometimes I need a reset. I need time to breathe and be still with yourself. I think that's a really big thing. And sometimes it's hard to notice if you are struggling a bit, it's hard to notice until you're knee deep in mud with it. I think the most important thing, and this would be said over and over again, but don't sit with it by yourself. Like, there are so many different avenues and pathways for help, but at the same time, you have to be the one that wants the help. You have to be the one that goes, righto, I'm going to do this. I think the biggest thing with working up here too is back yourself, which that sounds very hypocritical of me because I've had a lot of moments where I haven't backed myself, 
but you learn. It's up and down, you learn. But back yourself, back what you think, back what you say. Be respectful, learn, listen, but back yourself so that you have that confidence. Because this work will give you confidence, but you have to you have to sit with yourself and be happy with what you do while learning. I guess it kind of leads me into that final question. And as I'm thinking about it, so you, I know you listen to episodes and I always finish up with looking back on your life so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? But at the same time as I'm thinking that, I'm like, Christ, she's only 20. Like I still can't believe so much has happened in such a short period of time. But also I just think it's it's phenomenal that you've got this insight and you've had this reflection and you've had everything that's gone on at such a young age and that you sometimes people don't kind of figure this stuff out until they're well in their 40s, 50s, 60s, you know. So it, it obviously I'm not in your position, but it, from the outside I imagine it would be quite empowering. Even it, You may not even realise it until later on, but I think if I'd had that at your age, like it, it sets you up yes, um, to take things on better. So looking back on your short life so far, <laughs> um, you know, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? Um, I always I, – I love what you said because I always think in order to move forward you have to look back because if, you, if you're always looking forward for something, you can't look at how far you've gone. And that's something I'm really working on lately is thinking you may feel very, like, very still and not moving, but you look and you see how far you've come. And I think the next thing I've taken away from my short little 20 years is listen, listen to everyone. Even if you don't agree, respect opinions. Like, every every person you meet, you share something with. You give them something, they give you something. And whether it's something you go, I'm not going to do that. I don't like the way that was done, or you go, wow, that's something I can take into consideration. Like every everything's an energy transfer, everything you do, and that's why I think you should take every opportunity, I think, to listen to people, even if you don't agree with it, because it, it builds who you are. There's those different connections, and it builds who you are as a person. It's That's probably – I probably got my father coming out of me saying that, but just – like being able to talk to people and learning is just, it's a massive thing. And that's the other thing that you don't ever stop learning ever. Never, ever, ever till the day you die. 